And good afternoon. You're listening to the Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, I don't normally pay attention to politics. It's like going to the zoo and watching the uh, interaction between uh, the animals fighting over food. But I saw some mainstream media comments that just absolutely annoyed the crap out of me. According to the mainstream media, who are primarily on the left, Mike Lindell, the CEO of MyPillow, and Rudy Giuliano led an insurrection to uh, protest the... uh, they did, wanted the RNC senior officials not uh, go along with the election done for uh, members of Congress. Now, if it's done by the right, it's an insurrection. If it's done by the left, even if people are killed and the cars are turned over and they're burning, it's a spirited protest. Now, I don't particularly support either side. But I am just sick and tired of the, and the worst offenders, CNN, of their attacking anybody who doesn't agree with them. They are there to give the news, not to create the news, all all the other silliness they indulge in. And that's one reason there's audience has dropped to about 400,000. Those are the uh, card-carrying left extremists, to use their phraseology. Well, today's January 30th, 30th day of the year. 335 days remain till this year is over with. Um, be interesting to see what happens. I, I saw a... Um, Prediction by a four-star that by uh, 2025 we're going to be in um, war, probably with China. Well, I've been there and done that. I ain't going to do it again. In 1018, Poland and the Holy Roman Empire concluded the Peace of Bautzen. Now, in 1018, the Holy Roman Empire was still something to be reckoned with. It became a joke later on. 1607 estimated 200 square miles along the coast of the Bristol Channel and the southern estuary in England are destroyed by massive flooding. About 2,000 people died. In uh, 1648, 80 years war, the Treaty of Munster and Osnabrück is signed, ending the conflict between the Netherlands and Spain. 1649, Charles I of England is executed in Whitehall, London. Uh, they didn't bother with elections. They just cut his head off. Oliver Cromwell was running that show. The Lord Protector of the Commonwealth. 1661. He's ritually executed himself more than two years after he died. On the 12th anniversary of the execution of the monarch, he himself deposed. 1703. The 47 Ronin under the command of Oishi 
Kanosuke avenged the death of their master by killing Akira Yoshinaka. 1789, the Taisan forces emerge victorious against king armies and liberate the capital, Thanglong. The uh, 1806, the original Lower Trenton Bridge, also calls the Trenton Makes the World Takes Bridge, which spans the Delaware River between Morrisville, Pennsylvania, and Trenton, New Jersey, is opened. The uh, 1820, Edward Bransfield signs the Trinity Peninsula and cites the Trinity Peninsula, I can't read or talk, and claims the discovery of Antarctica. The uh, 1835 saw the first assassination attempt against the President of the U.S. Richard Lawrence attempts to shoot President Jackson, but fails and is subdued by a crowd, including several congressmen as well as Jackson himself. In those days, congressmen acted. Today, if a congressman saw an assassination attempt, he'd have to convene a committee to determine what it was he really saw. 1847, Yerba Buena, California is renamed San Francisco. 1858, the first Halle concert is given in Manchester, England, making the official founding of the Halle Orchestra as a full-time professional orchestra. 1862, the first American ironclad warship, the USS Monitor, is launched. If I'm not mistaken, it was referred to even by its own supporters as a cheese box on a raft. And in its battle against the Merrimack, pretty much fought to a draw. 1889, Archduke Crown Prince Rudolf of Austria, heir to the Austrian, uh, Austro-Hungarian throne, is found dead with his mistress, Baroness uh, Mary Vetsera, in the, in the Maryland. 1902, the first Anglo-Japanese alliance is signed in London. 1908, Indian pacifist and leader Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi is released from prison by Chancey Smuts after being tried and sentenced to two months in jail earlier in the month. 1911, a destroyer USS Terry, make, Terry makes the first airplane rescue at sea, saving the life of Douglas McCurdy 10 miles from Havana, Cuba. 1902. Japanese uh, car maker Mazda is founded initially as a cork producing company. Some of their cars aren't much bigger than corks, but there you have it. Uh, 1925, the government of Turkey expels Patriarch Constantine VI from Istanbul. Istanbul used to be Constantinople. Um, 1930, the Politburo of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union orders the confiscation of lands belonging to the Kulaks in a campaign to decolonization, resulting in the execution and forced deportation of millions of people. You don't see the liberal left screaming about that. 1933, Hitler's rise to power. He takes office as a Chancellor of Germany on this date in 33. In 1939, during a speech in the Reichstag, Hitler made a prediction about the end of the Jewish race in Europe if another world war were to occur. 
1942, Japanese forces invade the island of Ambon in the Dutch East Indies. Some 300 captured Allied troops are killed after the surrender. One quarter of the remaining POWs are alive at the end of the war. 1944, the Battle of Cisterna, part of Operation Shingle, begins in central Italy. In 1945, the Wilhelm Gustloff, overfilled with German refugees, sinks in the Baltic after being torpedoed by a Soviet submarine. 9,500 people, give or take, are killed in the sinking. 1945, the raid at Cabanua Tuan. 126 American Rangers and Filipino resistance fighters liberate over 500 Allied prisoners from the Japanese controlled Cabanatuan POW camp. 1948, saw the British South African Airways Tudor 4 Star Tiger disappear over the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, 1948, following the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi in his home compound, India's Prime Minister, Jawaharlal Nehru, broadcast to the nation saying the light's gone out of our lives. Uh, the date of the assassination becomes observed as Martyrs Day in India. Uh, 1956, in the U.S., civil rights movement leader Martin Luther King Jr.'s home is bombed in retaliation for the Montgomery bus boycott. 1959, the forces of the Sultanate of Muscat occupy the last strongholds of the Imamate of Oman, Saik, and Sharua, marking the end of Jabal Akhtar War in uh, Oman. 1959, the MS Hans Hetoff, specifically designed to operate in icebound sea, strikes an iceberg on her maiden voyage and sinks. All 95 people on board die. 1960, the African National Party is founded in Chad through the merger of several traditionalist parties. 1964, in a bloodless coup, General Nguyen Khan overthrows General Duong Van Minh's military junta in South Vietnam. 1968, the Tet Offensive, launched by forces of the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army against South Vietnam, the U.S. and their allies, starts on this date. The uh, 1969, the Beatles' last public performance on the roof of Apple Records in London took place on this date. This uh, impromptu concert is broken up by the police. Can't have folks having fun without permission, don't you know? All right, 1972, Bloody Sunday, during the Troubles. British paratroopers opened fire on anti-internment marchers in Derry, Northern Ireland. Killed 13. Another person later dies of injuries sustained during the, the uh, march. 1972, Pakistan leaves the Commonwealth of Nations in protest of its recognition of breakaway Bangladesh. 1974, Pan Am Flight 806 crashes near Pago Pago. Uh, International Airport in American Samoa. 97 people die. Okay. Nineteen eighty-two, Richard Scrinta 
writes the first PC virus code, which is 400 lines long and disguised as an Apple boot program. That's called Elk Cloner. 1989, the American Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan is closed. 1995, hydroxycarbamide becomes the first approved preventative treatment for sickle cell disease. And in 2020, on this date, the World Health Organization declares COVID-19 to be a public health emergency of international concern. Now, say what you will. Evidence points to uh, it having originated in uh, Wuhan, even though the liberal left has turned backflips to make it not so. Now, over the last few shows, we've talked about haunted places in Canada, which is quite a haunted country, apparently. I mean, let's face it. They've got His Majesty Trudeau. Let's go to Kingston in eastern Ontario. It's a small city. Takes pride in its past and its beautiful, well-preserved historical public buildings. The city's located at the base of the Riddell Canal in the beginning of the St. Lawrence River. So it, it ensured its place as a primary military and economic center in Upper Canada. I mean, you can see signs of that in the city's motto, which describes Kingston, Kingston as a place where history and innovation thrive. Along with Kingston's rich history comes a plethora of ghostly tales. Let's go to the Hotel Du Hospital. We had a Hotel Du here. There's a lot of stories about haunted locales around the city of Kingston. And one of these describes the spirit of an older woman dressed in traditional nun clothing who's said to still be making the rounds in the wee hours of the night, continuing to check in on patients long after she died. One of several ghosts reported in, uh, reported to be seen and uh, heard at Hotel Dew Hospital. Now, the Hotel Dew, still operational, one of the most prominent hospitals in Kingston, even today, was founded by the religious hospitalers of St. Joseph, built in uh, 1845 on the corner of Brock and Sydenham Streets. 1892, it moved to its location at 166 Brock Street, almost quadrupling the space for patients to 150. And, of course, a chapel and convent were added in 1895 and 1897. In 1912, a school for the training of nurses was added. Now, the old nun I talked about is the most famous ghost in this location. But she hadn't been given a uh, a name, per se. Folks never referred to her as the old nun. Now, a number of staff members have reported seeing her over the years in various locations throughout the hospital. 
I've been moving along the hallway, caught my peripheral um, flicker of vision from the corner of the eye, or seen full on and very clear. She doesn't appear to be spectral-like or easily mistaken. Uh, she's easily mistaken for a living person until inexplicably vanishes around a corner or in front of your eyes. Now, patients have also reported being visited in the middle of the night by a woman matching the nun's description. And none of them talk about being feeling alarmed, but rather being comforted by her presence as she comes into their room, stands by their bedside, and behaves just like a nurse doing late-night check-ins on the patients. It's only after learning the next morning that there was no nun on duty that night. Yet the patients realize they've had a paranormal encounter. Now, there appears to be only one reported incident involving the nun when the person who encountered her was upset and frightened. A staff member reported an eerie occurrence during one of her overnight shifts. She was pushing a cart down a quiet, deserted hallway, and certainly she was overcome by a distinct feeling that she wasn't alone. Immediately she felt frightened and paused in the hall, and then she felt a hand grab her shoulder and pull her around. And there, standing in front of her, was the old nun. The image was quite clear, and she could feel the hand on her shoulder. And then slowly it faded away. Well, one claimed there was nothing particularly frightening about the old nun's appearance, and in fact her face uh, denoted a friendly demeanor. But the staff member was still scared out of her gourd and admitted running down the hallway to try to get away. And one of the most active spirits in Hotel Dew is known by the name of Minnie. Appears to be uh, a young girl and moves actively about the hospital just like a playful child might. Minnie is thought to be the ghost of a young person who was orphaned uh, on the route from Ireland to Canada. Her parents died before arriving in the new land. And Minnie, like so many other children in her situation, survived in a, a role that became known as a home girl, a child forced into domestic slave labor. These children spent their days cleaning and tidy and doing laundry and cooking in exchange for having food and place to stay at the hospital. Now, Minnie, uh, it appears, whose playful childhood is absorbed with tedious hours of physical labors, returned to the hospital to relive the type of childhood she wanted to have in the lonely years she spent without her family. Maybe she sees the current patients and staff that she appears to as a potential playmate from a lost childhood. Today, Hotel Dew contains displays about the history of nursing and houses a room full of acquisitions from the profession. Look at the two different historical nursing uniforms on the display room in the building, and it's easy to, to imagine the building's history and to speculate about the after-images of those who used to spend their time in those walls. Echoes of so many who dedicated their lives to caring for the living and received uh, care at the hotel due are occasionally seen by those living today. And in many of the stories we had about the local hotel due before it was torn down 
to make room for something that was never built, uh, it makes it appear that uh, Hotel Do in general, and there are a number of Hotel Do's around the world, uh, have stories of hauntings. Now, let's go from the Hotel Do to the Kingston General Hospital. There is an interesting tale originally reported by a Queen's University student of a lost love and the performance of that love beyond the realm of the mortal coil. The story originates in the spring of 1957 on the waterfront path across the street from Kingston General Hospital. A young student and her boyfriend were walking hand in hand along the path when they ran into an elderly woman she recognized from where she worked. The woman, uh, generally in the story, is referred to uh, just got an interesting news break here. You know, people laugh Jeff Dunham and Ackman, the suicide bomber, but there are suicide bombers out there. And in Peshawar, Pakistan, a suicide bomber just struck a crowded mosque inside a police compound in Pakistan, causing the roof to collapse and killing at least 44 and wounding about 150 more. And that's inside a police compound. Most of the casualties, as you might guess, were police officers. But it's not clear how the bomber is able to slip into the, to a wall compound that houses the police headquarters in the northwestern city of Peshawar. And Peshawar itself is in a high security zone with other government buildings. So you have to ask yourself, is anybody safe anywhere? Well, we were talking about Mrs. White, who hadn't been at work for several months. She'd taken leave in order to care for her ailing husband. And uh, the couple said Miss White looked terribly distraught and greeted the young woman without once acknowledging or speaking to the boyfriend. She'd just been to the hospital across the street to visit her husband, but the elevator in Victory Wing where he's located was broken and she couldn't get up to see him. Now the Queen student wasn't sure what to say but offered her condolences before they parted ways and she continued on along the path with her boyfriend. A week later, a young student was reading a monthly magazine from Queens when she found the obituary for both Mrs. White and her husband. Now, she was a little shocked to see the date of Mrs. White's death was three weeks before, which meant she'd encounter Mrs. White two weeks after the old woman died. And that's disconcerting. I don't care who you are. Confused and frightened and unsure what to do, the student headed to the hospital to see if the dates were wrong in a printed obituary. Her investigation revealed that Ms. White had indeed died on the date printed, and before her death on that day, she'd been to the hospital to visit her husband. And during the visit, she'd been informed that his illness was fatal, and he didn't have much time. And she, she'd say her final goodbyes. Completely distraught, she left the hospital. 
walked across the street and walked straight into Lake Ontario and drowned. Now, there was another intriguing fact that came to light. During the meeting with Mrs. White, she talked about the elevator being broken in the victory wing, but that happened after Mrs. White died. So was the ghost of Mrs. White continuing her routine of visiting her husband, even though neither of them were still alive? And once the elevator was broken, was the ghost unable to follow Mrs. White's usual path? Now, there have not been any other reports of Mrs. White visiting the hospital. Maybe the broken elevator put a stop to her routine. The, uh, there's another ghost at Kingston General Hospital. Seen from time to time in the emergency ward. And while there are not many details about this particular story, staff claim to have seen the ghost of a man who died shortly after his Model T Ford crashed into a tree on the exact location where the emergency room now stands. Would he have survived had he crashed his car at a later time? When he would have been so close to life-saving help? Maybe that's what the ghost is looking for, ever suffering through the knowledge of being so close to medical attention but unable to to change his fate. Now there's a story about a haunting associated with St. Mary's of the Lake Hospital. This hospital was established in 1946. Located on Union Street in Kingston, it's a teaching hospital that specializes in rehabilitation and palliative care, uh, continuing care, and geriatric services. Almost all of the reported ghostly sightings have occurred in the oldest wing of St. Mary's of the Lake. Staff in the hospital repeatedly reported the ringing of patient bells coming from vacant rooms and lights that seemed to turn on and off by themselves for no particular reason. They've also reported uh, bathroom taps turning on full blast all by themselves. Once it's even caused uh, flooding on one of the floors. Now some believe the flooding might have been caused by a mischievous or forgetful patient, but uh, all the patients in the wing were, where it occurred were in chronic care and weren't even able to get under beds. Now, both patients and staff have reported sightings of a woman dressed in a, all in white. Patients claim to see her sitting on the ends of their beds. Though she almost seems to be waiting patiently at the bedside of a loved one, she usually disappears seconds after she realizes somebody's seen her. Also reported to have placed a hand firmly on the shoulders of those in need of comfort. As with sightings of her at the end of the patient's bed, when the consoled person turns to see whose hand is providing comfort, they see the woman for the briefest of seconds before she fades away into nothing. Maybe the most chilling tale from St. Mary's of the Lake has to do with the eerie sound of babies crying. Now, the noise of a helpless crying baby in the night is difficult for anybody to listen to, especially if you can't go and comfort the child. Humans are innately programmed, it seems, to respond to such an alarming call. And though the walls of the wails of uh, crying infants sometimes echoes down the hallway in the middle of the night, these particular cries for assistance can't be answered. There are no babies at St. Mary's of the Lake. Haven't been in some time.
since the 40s. And even earlier when the building was actually used as an orphanage. In those days, families from child, uh, fatalities from childhood diseases were more common, so maybe the reports from staff of being haunted by those pleading infant cries in the night are echoes from the past of children who can no longer be cared for or helped. They're just voicing their displeasure, if you will. Well, from Kingston General Hospital, let's talk about the Kingston Psychiatric Hospital also known as the Rockwood Insane Asylum. Now, apparitions of former patients and physicians have been seen, and disembodied voices and bangs and phantom screams have been heard echoing through the night of the old Rockwood Insane Asylum. Now sitting vacant, the former Rockwood Insane Asylum sprawls on a lush, beautiful green space that slopes down to the shores of Lake Ontario. This set of large structures are haunted in two ways. Both as unsettling reminder of the significant role it played in the history of patient treatment care in Ontario and Canada and in the eerie tales that are whispered about the, the ghosts and the spirits and other echoes from the past that have been seen and heard within the walls of these structures. According to the Museum of Healthcare in Kingston, Rockwood, Densana Sam was originally intended as a building that would house a uh, the criminally insane of Kingston Penitentiary. Construction of the asylum began in 1859, and its beautiful view and proximity to Lake Ontario was intended to have a calming effect on the patients that would be housed there. Now, before the Crown purchased 35 acres of the Rockwood estate, which had been originally owned by uh, John Cartwright, a physician named John Palmer at Litchfield rented the Lockwood Villas as a, and had a private asylum. Well, Litchfield, the only physician during the early years of the Rockwood, was said to have relied heavily on liberal uses of alcohol by day and said it is at night for patient control. He had clear viewpoints about the quality care and therapy required for the patients. He believed the successful therapy depended on two things trusting relationship established with the patients, hence the use of alcohol, I would suspect, and careful observation and classification of their ailments. He believed that criminal lunatics are no more dangerous or violent than non-criminal lunatics and should be treated like regular patients. This led to his position that, that uh, the asylum, which originally housed only the criminal insane prisoners from nearby Kingston uh, Penitentiary, be open to non-criminals as well. He contended non-criminal lunatics were also falsely charged with criminal offenses. In support of uh, these uh, inmates' families, no less, so that they could be admitted to the local asylum rather than shipped off to the provincial lunatic asylum in Toronto. So if you accuse one of your family members of a crime and they get convicted primarily on the testimony of their families, they got to stay locally at government expense rather than being shipped off to the, the provincial asylum in Toronto where there might be a charge levied on the family. In 1868, the government of Ontario accepted Litchfield's proposal and the institution was open to non-criminals as well. Now, his successor, Dr. Dixon, was vehemently opposed to the idea of mixing non-criminals and criminals in the same building, and he insisted they be kept widely apart. 
going to Dixon, the criminal and non-criminal classes of lunatics should never, under any circumstances, be admitted for treatment in the same building. They should never be permitted to commingle due to the fact that one vicious criminal is sufficient to contaminate a whole ward. Apparently criminal activity is... Uh, can be... Uh, others can be infected. Apparently we had... Uh, an ambulance come by and my... Uh, Vicious guard dogs went nuts. Well, we were talking about uh, the fact that uh, Dr. Dixon didn't believe that uh, non-criminals and criminal lunatics should be allowed to commingle. And uh, convicts from nearby Kingston the Penitentiary were conscripted to build... Uh, the architect's progressive limestone edifice. It was William Coverdale was his name. He designed uh, incorporated large rooms with windows and several uh, common sitting rooms. The building was also equipped with one of the very first central heating systems in Canada. These systems are considered uh, far safer than stones or open fires. The uh, architecture and picturesque location were a source of pride for the local community, and Rockwood Insane Asylum was regularly featured on postcards from the 1900s. This lakeside location was also a popular destination for tourists and other visitors to the Kingston area, some days with an overwhelming capacity. One superintendent wrote in 1882, we've been deluged with visitors. They got about a 1,000 visitors a day who came through uh, on any particular public day. And while the exterior may draw tourists and captivate historians, there were, were dark, unseen forces lurking inside the walls. Over the years, staff at the institution reported being overcome by overwhelming uh, sensations of despair and terrible dread when working in the basement, for example. Some reported feeling as if they were being smothered in a heavy blanket of negative emotions, and others felt trapped and helpless. Working alone in a particular wing of the building late at night, one employee reported a paranormal sighting. He was walking down a hallway when he rounded the corner and saw what appeared to be the figures of a mother and her young child. They stood holding hands in the main entrance doorway to the top of the stairs. Now, the building at that point in time was locked up tight, and the only other person on duty that night was a fellow employee in another wing. So the employee knew it was impossible for somebody to have gotten inside. He became immediately overwhelmed by an eerie sensation, particularly when his eyes adjusted to the light and he saw the clothing the two were wearing. They looked more like period costumes than anything a mother and mother and her child might be wearing. And he knew for certain the two were not intruders in the building. In fact, he felt certain they weren't real live people at all and felt himself grow weak and pale at the thought he was looking at a pair of ghostly visitors. He was shaken and trembling and pale and slowly and carefully backed away down the hall, not taking his eyes off the unmoving pair until he rounded the corner and they were out of sight. And then, as you might guess, he spun on his heel and took off running. On the Haunted North American website, under a listing for the Brockwood Asylum for the Criminally Insane, there's a testimonial from somebody identified only as A.H., 
referenced her brother's experience during construction and restoration work in the building. According to this AH, the construction worker reported hearing footsteps and doors opening and closing on their own. But more disturbing is the description of a photograph of the vacant building taken in the early morning hours before the sun came up. In the photograph, an unexplained lime green light can be seen glowing from the first floor window. And standing in that light appears to be the shape of a person. Maybe the greatest tragedy stems from one of the significant uh, triumphs to have taken place uh, in Rockwood. There were two medical superintendents at the institution, Dr. William Metcalf and Dr. Charles Clark, now, whose perspectives as physicians were heavily influenced by the work of Dr. Workman, the, super, the superintendent of the Toronto Prevention Lunatic Asylum and from 1853 to 1875. Metcalf and Clark began a course of improving both the living conditions and the treatment of the patients. In the 1800s, the main goal of the treatment at the facility was to calm the patients rather than to cure or treat them. Alcohol and chlorohydrate were the drugs of choice administered to pacify patients, and how the excited patients might need also be bled as a method of calming them down. Yes, medical science at one point in time pushed bleeding. You know, bound in shackles or muffs, a restraint that held two hands together in a single boxing glove type contraption, patients were constantly impeded from movement. Others were treated to a continuous bath therapy, uh, which was an immersion in water and put them to their heads left poking up through a canvas opening for. And they'd sometimes sit in these baths for up to 12 hours at a time. These were among the many methods of calming used for the more excitable patients. Now, sedatives commonly used on patients included morphine, bromides, peraldehyde, hmm, sulfonol, and barbitol. Physicians in early days also performed some of the first neurological procedures on Rockwood patients, using tree panning sets to drill holes in the patient's skulls. Dr. Metcalf was an instrumental force in reshaping the institution, transforming Rockwood from its previous ties to the Kingston Penitentiary as an asylum for criminal lunatics to a facility more in line with the other hospitals for the mentally ill. And he focused on developing a... Uh, program of humane treatment for the patients abolished the overly common use of physical restraints and instituted a program of uh, recreational and occupational activities. Additionally, he improved the, the bedding and the furniture and, and the decors uh, of the surroundings and eliminated the use of the distinctive canvas clothing that clearly marked the patient as a lunatic's. Previously used tin cups and spoons were replaced with ceramic plates and proper silverware. And healthcare, religion, and education were also introduced. Metcalf was also key in influencing his friend and future brother-in-law, Dr. Clark, to come to the institution as an assistant superintendent. And together they worked at bettering the conditions for patients at the hospital. They also increased the patient's sense of freedom with the implementation of an open-door policy. Um, 
such a policy had been introduced in the London Asylum in 1882, which does raise the question, is that how Jack the Ripper got around? In the morning hours of August 13, 1885, both doctors were making their rounds, and there was a patient by the name of Patrick Maloney, uh, Maloney who uh, suffered from an extreme state of paranoia, and he attacked uh, Dr. Metcalf with a knife. He actually stabbed Metcalf in the abdomen. Metcalf managed to survive for a few days under hospital care, but he died as a result of his injuries in August of 1885. And before the building's final closure in, 18, in 1995, most commonly reported ghostly appearance occurred on the upper floors of the building. And according to the staff, the ghost most often seen in these areas was a stately-looking man dressed in 19th-century clothing. He was often seen patrolling the hallways and moving in and out of patients' rooms as if checking on them. And a number of staff who have seen him believe that's the ghost of Dr. Metcalf. Both touching and haunting to think that the ghost of Dr. Metcalf, the man who changed the face and nature of the treatment inside Rockwood Insane Asylum, continued to care about the facility after his uh, murder. The man described by so many is indeed Dr. Metcalf. Has he never given up feeling responsible for the patients he cared for in his life? Well, from Kingston, let's turn to Ottawa. The Ottawa Civic Hospital. Originally known as the Ottawa Civic Hospital, the Civic campus of the Ottawa Hospital is uh, located in the Kitchissippi Ward in central Ottawa. Near the intersection of Carling and Parkdale Avenues. Opened in 1924 with 550 beds, 88 medical staff, 30 nurses, and 140 student nurses. Well, nursing is often seen as a calling or vocation rather than simply a job or career. And there are people who dedicate their lives to the what you might call the intricate dance of caring for, relating, responding to the mental and physical needs of others. Often working extended shifts of 12 hours or longer for a committed and engaged nurse, it may seem that the ongoing call of nursing never fades. Some nurses so utterly consigned to their vocation might never leave, even after their physical bodies are returned to the earth. Which might explain why so many of the ghosts that we've talked about at the various... Uh, Canadian hospitals uh, have some relationship to nursing. There's one particular story from the Ottawa Civic Hospital involving a woman uh, folks referred to as Aunt Cheryl. She woke up groggy after an operation. When she recovered her sense of surroundings, she became aware that there was somebody moving about her room. And she thought to herself, since her throat was dry, post-operative after-effect of the anesthesia, most likely, she thought to herself, maybe I can get the nurse to get me some ice. So she waved a hand at the female figure she saw standing across the room at the foot of her neighbor's bed. But that particular nurse didn't uh, turn to acknowledge her. And as her eyesight became sharper, she came more and more out from underneath the effects of the anesthetic. She was startled to see the woman wasn't wearing the typical uniform of the day, but an old-fashioned nursing cap from long, long ago. 
She lay in the bed watching the figure of that nurse and tried to understand if maybe there was an anniversary or special event commemorating the history of nursing. Something that might explain this, uh, well, shall we say, peculiar nurse's outfit. And then apparently f finished checking in on a patient yelled the bed. The figure turned away as if to leave the room and faded out of sight. Well... Aunt Cheryl was, uh, shall we say, somewhat taken back, but she wasn't afraid. She she decided she'd maybe seen the spirit of a former nurse continuing to make her rounds, checking on patients from the afterlife. She wasn't frightened by the experience. In fact, she chose to reflect on the dedication that particular nurse must have had during her life on this earth. And then from there, we go to Sudbury, St. Joseph's Hospital. You know, the, recently that site's become an $80 million condo project headed up by Panoramic Properties and approved by the city's planning committee in 2012. But the former location of the Sudbury General Hospital on Parish Street is now nothing but an old empty building, and it quietly holds the secrets and the whispers of the many births and deaths that took place in that building over the years. Now, based on some of the stories told about the site, it doesn't appear any amount of new construction and architecture will ever shake the spirits free from this allegedly haunted location. 1944, the Sisters of St. Joseph of Salt St. Marie purchased seven acres of property in Sudbury at 700 Paris Street. Land was acquired to establish the Sudbury General Hospital of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. They always got these fancy names, don't you know? May of 1949, the cornerstone was laid and the construction was completed in 1950. Known over the years as both the Sudbury General Hospital and St. Joseph's Health Center, the location is also home to the Marymount School of Nursing, which opened in 53, and to the St. Joseph's Convent in 1947. Excuse me, 1957. Duh. By the 1960s, the hospital had 326 beds and a nuclear medicine department and an ICU. With the completion of the A-Wing, the hospital could accommodate 375 patients by 1973. And that same year, an inquest ended the mysterious death of 22 patients and the, the new A-Wing was held, and it was decided the deaths were caused by a mix-up involving pipes that contained pure oxygen and nitrous oxide. 1997, Ontario's Health Services Restructuring Commission uh, consolidated Sudbury's three hospitals into a single location at the Laurentian Hospital site. The plan was to close the, the General Memorial Hospital locations. The old General Hospital site was uh, maintained by the Sisters of St. Joseph, who planned to convert the building into a long-term care facility for seniors. But it was determined that bringing the building up to code would be just too expensive. St. Joseph's Villa and continuing care facilities were built at different locations in 2003 and 2009. The old hospital on Paris Street operated until March of 2010. Later that spring, a local photographer and a small group of people given permission to walk the hallways of the abandoned building, which had, since its closure, suffered from neglect and vandalism. And though the building was locked and abandoned, the photographer thought right away the location still hummed with a strong energy and the 
Security guards who worked there admitted they too could feel the building's uh, energy. Now, the energy was also represented visually in the messages the former staff members had left on the walls. And though they no longer traversed the hallways, the staff had left an amazingly amazing legacy of fine handwritten messages on the walls. According to the photographer, it was like a going-away card. They also noted how the etchings on the wall added to the spooky aura of the abandoned building. Now, his first visit to the place took place in the early evening, and he was exploring the top floor of the South Wing building when a breeze passed over his head. And he paused, puzzled, and wondered where the movement had come from. All the windows on that floor were closed and secured. He examined the area to see if anything was open enough to have caused that odd stirring in the air and found no possible explanation for the, the errant breeze. On a subsequent visit in April, he visited the former emergency room a waiting area to take pictures of discarded hospital equipment that was stored there. He saw an electronic sign that couldn't possibly have been hooked up to any computers or data storage system, but it was lit up to indicate the patient 86 was next to be served. He said all there was in the uh, emergency room was a computer and a desk. No way the sign could have been connected to anything. When he returned to June, the sign that had indicated residents see patient 86 in April had advanced to patient 91. Now, these were odd and unexplainable occurrences. It wasn't until he noted the and got down to the sub-basement of the hospital, he experienced something chilling he would never forget. I might say at this point in time, the the uh, the only name we have identifying this photographer is Tom. He said uh, the basement was so cold. That he could almost see his breath. And since it was early summer, this was very odd. It wasn't more than a dozen steps from the one working elevator that had brought him down to the basement when he heard something that sent a chill down his spine. He very clearly heard a little girl giggling. And then he described hearing shortly after these ghostly giggles what sounded like a bag of marbles dropped on the floor. And after the marbles finished dropping to the floor, the little girl's laughter became even louder. Well... Terrified, not wanting to hear or see what might happen next, he beat a hasty retreat out of the sub-basement and went back there. He did return to the hospital to take more photographs, but he mentioned at the time the air would change, becoming so heavy it was actually hard to breathe. He said the longer the place sits abandoned, the spookier it gets. Well, the site is to be developed into a beautiful waterfront condo, but uh, he doesn't think he'll be buying anything there leaving the whole old hospital grounds be left alone. He said everybody went there. They were born there, they died there. Energy doesn't dissipate, it just changes form. It's a sacred ground. Well, we turn next to Quebec. The Grey Nuns Convent in Montreal. Students living in a resident at Concordia University have had trouble falling asleep. And he might have a good reason for that. And it likely has nothing to do with being away from home for the first time. 
number of tragedies have taken place at that location. Almost 300 bodies buried in a crypt in the basement. 232 of those 300 bodies are gray nuns who were interred there. Now, the gray nuns is the name most commonly given to a group of six distinct Roman Catholic communities of women originally founded in 1737 by St. Margaret de Uville, young widowed woman. The nuns were devoted to helping others, compassionate service, charitable events, and supporting societies most vulnerable through schools and hospitals and long-term care facilities. At the age of 30, the Uville had lost four of her six children, her father and her husband of eight years. So, she turned to religion and dedicated herself to helping others. Began a small home that took in the poor, but in, as the group of women grew, they took on other projects. In 1747, they took over operation of the General Hospital of Montreal. The term Grey Nuns was derived from the original mocking nickname given to the Uvaro and her sisters. Les Grises was a term that meant uh, both the Grey Women and the Drunken Women. meant as a reference to the founder's husband, Francois de Uville, a bootlegger who had illegally sold liquor to the Aboriginal population. The name stuck and was maintained as a Reminded the group's humble beginnings, even as they grew and continued their charitable work. First native-born Canadian and to be declared a saint, Margaret de Uville was beatified in 1959 by Pope John uh, XXIII, who called her the mother of universal charity. Later canonized by Pope John Paul II in 1990. Congregation's mother house, built in 1871, housed as many as a thousand gray nuns who also served as a hospital and an orphanage. Top floor was used as a dormitory for the youth and the lower part of the buildings. The west wing was occupied by sick and wounded soldiers returning from the wars. According to several articles published in the Winnipeg Free Press in February 1918, a nighttime fire on St. Valentine's Day uh, on the top story of the building, triggered by electrical wiring, it's suspected. Resulting in the death of at least 53 children from the fifth floor orphanage. And while 53 infant bodies were identified, there was speculation in the Concordian article as to whether or not some children's bodies were entirely cremated in the fire. Certainly, it's a possibility. 2004, Concordia University acquired the building, which had been declared a historical site by then from the nuns, and began the process of converting it into a student residence. Chapel in the building. The chapel in the building was converted into a study hall, and the nuns' rooms were turned into dorm rooms. Remains buried in the building's crypt were supposed to be transferred to Hill Saint Bernard near uh, Chantegoire, which uh, the nuns own. But uh, Quebec health authorities refused to allow opening and exhumation of the tomb, citing health reasons. Apparently, some of the sisters who were buried in the crypt in the basement died of infectious disease. Chris Mata, a spokeswoman for Concordia University, told CBC in April of 2013 the crypt in the basement would be visible to the public, but only returning nuns would be able to visit it. For the nuns, this was their, their life, this was their home, this was their family. This is where they worked, where they lived. There's a real connection here, and they'll always be welcome back. Well, at that point, we've run out of time for today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk more about the gray nuns and ghosts in Quebec. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.